Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub podcast, I'll be interviewing Mark Graben. Mark is VP of Improvement and Innovation Services at Kinexus, a technology consultancy focusing on creating and fostering cultures of improvement in healthcare and other industries. He is also an author, consultant, speaker, blogger, um, and uh, with a particular specialty in lean healthcare. At times in his career, he's worked for industry giants, including Dell and General Motors, and he has a master's in engineering and an MBA from MIT. Mark is the founder of Lean. Bl- leanblog.org, where you can read his posts and listen to his pod, the podcast episodes that he hosts. And you can find out more about him on his website at markgraben.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at Mark Graben. Mark is the author of two award-winning books from Productivity Press, Lean Hospitals, Improving Quality, Patient Safety, and Employee Management, and Healthcare Kaizen, Engaging Frontline Staff in Sustainable Continuous Improvements, which he co-authored with Joe Schwartz. More recently, Mark and Joe also reissued um, that last book, um, uh, as the Executive Guide to Healthcare Kaizen, Leadership for a Continuously Learning and Improving Organization. Mark has authored a number of LeanPub books, um, including editing and contributing to the, his late, uh, the book Practicing Lean, Learning How to Learn, How to Get Better, Better, which is a collection of first-person stories by uh, 16 authors from different industries reflecting on some of their mistakes and experiences practicing lean. In this interview, we're going to talk about Mark's professional interests, his books, and for those listening who are themselves authors or aspiring authors, at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience publishing and being an author. So thank you, Mark, for being on the Lean Pub podcast. Thanks, Len. Great to be here with you today. Yeah. Um, I always start these podcasts by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was interesting, interested how you first um, you know, got, got, got started in your career and, and how you got to where you are today. I know it's a long yeah. journey. Yeah, well, that's right. And I mean, you, you gave me, um, you know, you gave some of the background there. Uh, I, I guess my my origin story has uh, two acts so far. The first act was I thought I was going to be a plant manager, manufacturing executive. I thought that was my career path. You know, that that first part of my career, I was always focused on lean manufacturing, if you will, quote unquote, lean production, lean manufacturing precursor in a lot of ways to lean startup and and I think also lean publishing. And, you know, I, I've just always enjoyed helping people improve. And, um, you know, as a, you might say, a recovering engineer, I, you know, you have that um, maybe drilled into you that you need to come up with the answer, where with lean and continuous improvement, it's less about you coming up with answers and more about being a facilitator and a coach so after 10 years of manufacturing, the second act of my career was sort of a, uh, in a way, uh, I, I won't say accidental, but unplanned detour into healthcare, where I've now been working for almost 12 years, same challenges. How do we help people improve? There's no shortage of improvement opportunities in healthcare, and um, career sort of transitioned from being uh, an engineer and, and consultant to also being uh, a writer, which you know, started with blogging and that very directly led to the opportunities to, to write books. So um, love writing, um, sort of got pushed by my dad into engineering instead of being a sports writer. That's going way back in the origin story. Um, I wanted to be uh, a journalist and I guess yeah, I'm, I'm happy to have the engineering degree in that background. And uh, I guess, you know, it goes to show I, I was able to find ways to write anyway. And LeanPub, you know, in later years has, has been a part of that. Um, yeah, we, I know you've got a book on LeanPub called uh, Sports. Uh, um, uh, and I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about that 
a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Before we, we uh, go any further, though, I'd like to ask you, you know, for the benefit of those listeners who might not have heard of Lean before, I know it's a big question, but, you know, what's, what's the brief introduction to the history of, of Lean and what it is? Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, there's different places to start. I mean, I guess we maybe start in the middle and talk about how lean production almost 30 years ago was a term that was coined by some researchers at uh, at MIT that were studying the auto industry. They were looking at Japanese automakers, American automakers, European automakers, um, as as Jim Womack, one of the the authors and later founders of the Lean Enterprise Institute. I think this is his line. The the good news was that the Americans were better than the Europeans on productivity and quality. The bad news is that we were nowhere near as good as the uh, the Japanese, meaning you know Toyota and Honda and they studied the companies and you know zeroed in on on Toyota um, as kind of uh, what they would call the Toyota production system. There's this method, you know, that Toyota describes today. I mean, it's a method that has its origins post-World War II. Um, w. Edwards Deming, an American statistician and quality guru, was sent to help rebuild Japan and their industry after the war. Um, so there are, if we backtrack a little bit, a lot of American roots and other influences on Toyota and what became the Toyota production system. Today, in 2017, Toyota people who go and help people, uh, suppliers, nonprofits. There are great success stories out there with food banks and eye clinics. Um, you know, the Toyota describes lean as not just a set of technical methods of how do we improve tools, if you will, but they also describe it as a, a management approach. You could describe it as a style of leadership. They, they also describe it as a philosophy and, and Toyota, I think, most importantly, describes it as an integrated system, all of this together, developing people, improving the results of the organization. So Womack and, and the MIT team had to give it a word. They you know, said so if they wanted this approach to spread in the auto industry, and I worked at General Motors, Toyota was a dirty word. We can't say directly until tell people were copying Toyota, even though that was very much the case in 1995, you had to call it something. So the phrase, phrases like just in time, production, uh, lean came into vogue in the 90s. You know, lean is at its core, um, I think, you know, an improvement methodology, a management system, a culture. It's what we do. It's how we are as leaders. And it's proven transferable across different types of manufacturing, healthcare government, software companies, law firms, um, you know, people in every industry and in every setting would say, you know, well, hey, we, we don't build cars. How is this appropriate to us? And you know what? It turns out when you when you look at it, not just through a narrow lens of a better way of building cars, when you view it as a management system, a way of engaging everybody in continuous improvement, you realize, yeah, that that does apply. So that that's my attempt at lean in a, a nutshell. Yeah, thanks for that. That was that was very good um, to to ground it in um, a story from own, your own life because it, it might sound a little bit you know abstract to people, but this is mm-hmm. actually a very complex thing um, and um, uh, very sort of deep inside a company's culture, right? And so therefore, it can be quite a shock on a number of dimensions. 
And you right. have great blog posts that you invoke in your book, Practicing, your first chapter of your book, Practicing Lean, where you talk about your experience um, starting out at General Motors and the, I mean, I'm tempted to tell it, to retell it myself, but I just to sort of set the stage. <laughs> which, yeah, you know, which story? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure there's more. Um, uh, but, you know, there's complex things like, for example, under union rules, you know, the environment that you went to, the older shop floor workers were the ones who got to work um, and the younger ones were made to stay home because of seniority. And so mm -hmm. therefore the younger ones were not working and were making 70% <laughs> of their pay well, doing nothing. Yeah. And the older yeah, ones yeah. were doing all this strenuous work. Um, yeah. But then they made a hundred percent and just, you know, various things like, you know, you, you have a story about how you designed this more ergonomic way of doing something that was much safer and less strenuous for the workers who did that particular task and yet they resisted it your improvement because it was less macho um to to use the equipment rather than use part of it. Arms. Yeah. yeah and yeah. i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the story with the um i forget what they were called but they were these rods i think mm -hmm. um that were falling in the grease <laughs> um, yeah yeah, I mean, you know, Dr. Deming, you know, if you think back to some of the roots of the quality movement and the influence on Toyota, you know, Dr. Deming was one of the first to really try to uh, spread the idea that most problems, 90 some percent of problems, if you can even put a number to it, are due to the system. So the general mindset in the auto industry, and you see it creep into other environments is if something goes wrong, it's somebody's fault. It's the worker's fault. We'll blame the workers for poor quality. And, you know, I learned in, in two years at General Motors that no, I mean, like Dr. Deming said, the problem was uh, the, 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 the system, decisions made by management, policies, things that get in the way. And, um, you know, I learned, you know, the, the problem, in my opinion, the problem at GM was not the union. Um, it was not the union workers. I think even more specifically, people wanted to do good work. They had pride in their work. Um, there was a really awful environment, though, where I, I was I was laughing when you said that, you know, the older workers had to come to work. You think the reward would be getting to stay home for 70 percent of your pay. <laughs> for a lot of them, that's a deal they would have um, gladly taken. But. You know, he had all these different policies and, and bad decisions. So with the, the connecting rod story, um, connecting rods for anyone who's not a gearhead, connecting rods are inside the engine. Um, if you have an eight-cylinder engine, you have eight uh, connecting rods that are connected to the pistons and the crankshaft and the stuff is turning and gasoline mixtures are exploding. You know, this is what's part of what's driving the engine. And for uh, these engines, you know, they were high-tech Cadillac V8 engines. You know, the connecting rods, there was, for everything, a fair amount of precision that was required uh, in these parts for high performance. Um, people would sometimes brag about, you know, aerospace tolerances. And so there were, there were days where, you know, where if Deming and the, the, the lean Toyota approach would say to put quality first, you put quality first, respect people, let people do good work, solve problems, the production volume quantity problem will, will also be solved. So safety and quality first, everything else will follow. Well, the old GM mindset was mass production, quantity first. And, you know, make the numbers. Don't shut down the customer. Um, there, there's environment of fear and blame and yelling and cursing. And so in that environment, people start 
making all sorts of decisions under pressure that a calmer, more rational person might might challenge or question. So there, there was a day when shortage of connecting rods due to machines being down and other problems was jeopardizing engine assembly production. You can't assemble an engine without connecting rods. And that was starting to jeopardize uh, Cadillac production. You can't assemble a Cadillac without the engine. So, you know, a minute of downtime is really, really expensive and costly to the company. So this puts people under pressure. There's kind of cascading, yelling and screaming and cursing and blaming. Um, that led to a manager telling workers to go and start basically start scrounging for any parts they could find, basically connecting rods that had fallen off of the conveyance system. And when they fell off the conveyance system, they usually fell into a trough full of gr grease and sludge, really grimy stuff. So any of those parts that fell and hit the floor, hit anything, should have been scrapped because you don't know if that introduces a microscopic crack or a ding or something in the part. You don't want to take the risk and put this into an engine that's going into a $50,000 car or whatever Cadillacs cost back then. But under that pressure to hit the quantity numbers, managers told the workers, go looking for those parts. So they're pulling them, and I saw this with my own eyes, they're pulling parts out of the grease and slime and whatever bacteria and crap is down there pulling out these parts and like wiping them off and sort of trying to eyeball it. Well, that part looks okay. Well, that's not the point. That's not a decision you should be making that you shouldn't be putting workers in that position. And so they were going to take these parts and maybe introduce them into production. Well, as a, a young idealistic industrial engineer in that area, I said, well, no, we can't do this. And the area manager said, well, no, we got to make our numbers, you know, not your job, duly noted, get out of here. Um, so I went and I grabbed one of those greasy, slimy, gross, disgusting parts, kind of marched it through the office, uh, through the factory, into the office, into the industrial engineering manager's desk. It's kind of plopped it down on his desk, um, splattering grease and sort of trying to prove my point. I'm like, you know, to, you know Sid, and he was a good man, the, uh, the industrial engineering manager. Sid, would you want to buy a car that had one of these put inside the engine? And that sort of made my point and kind of shrugged and said, okay, I'll go talk to some people. But, you know, it just went to show, you know, that problems like that were of, of management's own creation. It wasn't, it wasn't a problem of the workers. Um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. The, um, uh, there's actually a kind of theme on this podcast along these lines where, um, you know, there's a kind of, there's a system and then there's something that one might not even really want to call a system, which is, I'm approximating something you wrote, um, uh, set high targets, and then apply pressure, which is very interpersonal, mm -hmm. which is why I sort of hesitate to call it a system. <laughs> it's and, an approach. Uh, it's an approach, <laughs> yeah. And, and for example, uh, one that um, exists to this day and in lots of industry, I mean, in all industries, including banking. And so mm -hmm. you, with, with that approach, which people, which managers, you know, or executives will adopt explicit with an explicit self-awareness about what they're doing. And then you right. end up with the Wells Fargo scandal yeah. where, uh -huh. um, yep. recently where um, exactly. they were caught, um, um, thousands of employees were caught mm -hmm. creating accounts for customers that the customers didn't want or know about or ask for, <laughs> um, right. in order for those individual workers to meet the targets that had been set. And, you know, it's as someone who comes from, you know, a different world from that it's it's very it's just very hard to believe in the banality 
of what's going on <laughs> in so many industries, you know, that like, it's yeah. really, and it's really, there's a lot of interpersonal vanity mm -hmm. and, and drama that really drives things, which seems to be quite the opposite of um, uh, what lean represents. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Wells Fargo is, is a situation with a systemic problem. More recently, the United Airlines case with the doctor being hauled off the flight. Um, I'll, I'll give the CEO credit um, that, that he says, look, this, this was a system failure and that's on me as the CEO. And they're changing policies. They're um, trying to, you know, change some rules and set people up for success. Don't put gate agents in that incredibly awkward, awful situation where you've got to figure out a way of freeing up four seats for employees to take those seats. And you're not really given much of an arsenal. You can offer up to $1,000. And then I guess the only thing was, well, you call the police. You know, and, you know, um, that, that escalated um, quickly. And to their credit, they are changing the rules. So that really should not happen again. And they talk about the need to empower employees. And I would question, OK, well, how are you going to do that? But that's a different discussion. Um, a lot of organizations might have fired everybody involved and talked about how, oh, this should have never happened. It's embarrassing. It'll it'll never happen again. And that's just more of a hope and a dream. We see this a lot in healthcare when something bad happens. Um, people get blamed and punished. And the organization says, oh, well, problem solved. We got the people we, we found the people who screwed up and we got rid of them. Where I'll give United credit, they seem to be doing, a. I think, my prediction would be a better job of addressing some of the root causes of this situation. But the other one that comes back to measurement is what seems like an awful lot of pressure for gate agents to hit on-time departures. And that, as a, as a frequent traveler... You see this a lot where there's there's stress, there's anxiety that that leads to poor customer service. I've seen situations where uh, somebody trying to make a connecting flight walks up to the gate and the door with five or 10 minutes before departure. The door has been closed and the plane has been pushed back all of like six inches. Well, they've hit their on time departure metric and the customer is saying, well, hey, I really need to get to so to whatever place. Could you please move the jet bridge and open the door and let me on? And they're like, no, we can't do that. So, I mean, I think there's still other examples of policies and metrics that get in the way of employees doing the right things for customers. So I mean, when they talk about empowering employees, and I think this would be true with lean and in any setting, part of the system involves drawing boundaries around your empowerment, that there are certain judgments and discretion and decisions that are made um, where you, we don't want a situation, and this is especially true in healthcare, doctors, nurses, others are rightfully concerned about like, well, you know, don't try to turn us into robots. Well, no, of course not. Standardized work as a, as a component to lean says, you know, we'll standardize the things that matter and we'll standardize them to the degree that matters. But that doesn't mean we treat every customer exactly the same. We don't treat every patient exactly the same. Um, but there are certain things that should be done very consistently. And within those boundaries, there's room for judgment. And, and I think that's part of, you know, what makes lean actually more of a humanistic system when it sounds like something that would be very robotic and mechanistic. 
Yeah, I've got. I've actually got a question about that from something you mentioned in your book. Um, but first, I, I just wanted to um, say you reminded me of this um, story we have um, in Canada of this company called WestJet um, mm-hmm. on the topic of airlines, and they sort of famously empowered their frontline employees to, as I recall, buy pizza um, for customers if there was a flight mm-hmm. delay, mm-hmm. and just giving them the freedom to make that kind of decision and provide that kind of pleasurable experience. <laughs> right. Such a delight and a surprise, both to the employees and to the customers, because, you know, you expect the experience at an airport, both as an employee and as a, a, a flyer, to be highly ritualized and constrained and antiseptic. You know, you would expect an employee to go, well, I've got to call legal if I'm going to buy a pizza, because what if someone's allergic? <laughs> and, like, it just goes to show about how, how, how like... <laughs> How actually how something that seems very simple actually does have lots of you know, context around it. Um, but yeah. at the same time, um, and this is my question related to something you write about in your book, empowerment can go too far. And you have this concept, you invoke this concept of a 5S cop. So mm-hmm. I had to look up what 5S was. And um, it appears to be, you know, less Nessman with tape around his desk, but, <laughs> you know, but, you know, yeah. very sophisticated um, uh, design for factory <laughs> floors. Um, but you can also end up with this concept of someone who's too empowered in the wrong way. And that's a, the, the 5S cop who goes around berating people for having bananas on their desks. Or sweaters on the back of their chairs or, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, how, how, I mean, if you go into an organization and you find, the, you know, these 5S cops, like what, how, what can you do as a consultant to um, rein them in? Yeah. Um, so it's funny. There's, there's kind of a dual nature there of somebody, the 5S cop feels empowered to do all of these things that disempower other employees. Um, I mean, I was going to say one other thing about empowerment, like whether it's WestJet or other settings, uh, it's great to say people are empowered. The, um, you know, the, the, what really matters is, is the details. So, you know, United put out a statement that says, well, our employees are going to be more empowered. Well, the worst thing you can do is say you're empowered and then criticize every decision those empowered people make retroactively. Like you're empowered, but if you guess wrong and do the wrong thing, we're going to come down on you. That will not lead to empowerment. That, that, that fear will lead people to um, not take risks and they'll fall back on policy, procedure, got to call legal, whatever. Uh, but, but back to your point, um, you know, so the situation 5S is, you know, it's often called a lean tool. It's a methodology. There's some philosophy to it that says, I think on some level, you know, make it easy for people to do their work. And that means a bet, the hypothesis would be a more organized workplace makes it easier for people to have high productivity and quality and safety. It gets, I think, sometimes misinterpreted as, yeah, go out and put tape around everything. Like, well, wait a minute, you're copying the method without understanding the philosophy or the purpose or going back to the question of what problem are you trying to solve? Right. So if we see Wall Street Journal, you have these articles that I blogged about, you know, companies where they had the 5S cop and, you know, companies that, that make policies like no sweater on the back of the chair. What problem is that solving? The sweater, for one, is solving the problem that the temperature is often really cold in these buildings. And the employee, by wearing a sweater, can be comfortable and probably happier, more productive, do better work. Um, The 5S cop mindset would look and say, well, that looks bad. It's not consistent. I'm like, well, who cares? 
is your company going to be more profitable because people don't have sweaters on their chairs? And you've put a tape outline around the printer saying, this is a printer. The printer doesn't go anywhere. People know it's a printer. What problem are you trying to solve? And, and, and uh, the other thing I'll rant about is, you know, a policy of like no personal items on your desk. I'm like, well, what what kind of what kind of sadist comes up with a rule like this? Uh, it's not grounded in lean principles. It's not solving a problem. And, um, you know, I've got uh, a journal article that I always hang on to that says, you know what, they've done studies. When people have family photos on their desks, they are happier and they are more productive and they do better work. So if anything, 5S and standardization should say, <laughs> I mean, this is a joke, you should force people to have a family photo on their desk <laughs> if you were going to standardize in any direction. So, you know, um, Part of what led to the book Practicing Lean, though, was reflection around, you know, it's easy to go off on a rant about the 5S cop. But then I sort of stopped, stopped to think, well, what good does it do to sort of mock that practice? You, know, you say it's a cautionary tale. And I, I've had somebody email me and say, look, our company started to go down this dysfunctional lean office 5S cop path. And because of your blog post, it helped convince people that we should uh, call time out and really reevaluate, are we solving problems or are we implementing 5S? But, you know, in, in, in the practice of lean, you know, you, you, we all make mistakes. And that's what this book is about, myself included, sharing some of these stories where you, know, you, you might say a little bit of knowledge can be a dangerous thing. I've learned a method. I've learned a tool. I'm going to go apply that tool. And people may make make mistakes that are born out of uh, overenthusiasm. And I think part of the key thing is if we make a mistake, do we listen for feedback? Do we realize I, uh, the 5S cop did something that really alienated a lot of their employees or coworkers? Do you learn from that and adjust? Or do you keep marching forward and say, oh, well, people are resistant to change. People are jerks. People are messy. I'm going to keep doing I'm going to go from office to office in this law firm and tell everybody no sweaters, no personal items, no bananas. Well, repeating the same mistakes over and over again is not lean. You know, lean lean should be based on what's sometimes called the Deming cycle of plan, do, study, adjust. And a lot of times we get stuck in a cycle of plan, do, plan, do. And, and we don't get feedback. And so I think for one, if you involve people, somebody would speak up if you have a good environment to say, wait a minute, that sounds like that's not helpful to have a sweater rule. And maybe you never implement a sweater rule. Or if you do implement the sweater rule, hopefully you get feedback from people who say, I don't think that rule is helpful and you would adjust. So I think I, I'm, I'm, I try to be more patient to sort of people who are first time out making mistakes, it, as long as they learn and adjust, that's okay. As, as a coach or a consultant, sometimes you'd like to help people avoid really bad mistakes, but sometimes people need to learn through their own small mistakes. So I think that's, that's part of the conundrum where I, I do get a, le a lot less tolerant of somebody who runs around saying things repeatedly that are factually incorrect about lean and they're never open to learning or adjusting their approach. You know, they, you know, people who say, "Oh, lean is just about speed and efficiency." Well, no, that's 
That's not true at all. Again, you know, look at Toyota. It's about flow and quality going hand in hand. And hopefully that's the same thing, whether it's in healthcare or publishing or any set. On that subject, um, we've been we've been talking about um, lean in the concept of manufacturing. But um, as you mentioned in your description of your own origin story, you you made the move from manufacturing to healthcare, and I've got some questions about that the application uh-huh. of lean in healthcare and its importance. But before we move on, I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about that transition because that's a big big change um, from one area uh-huh. to another, and what 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 led you to that accidental uh, shift. Yeah, it was um, it was partly right place, right time. I think it was partly putting myself in position to take advantage of, of opportunities. So, you know, I was working in manufacturing um, 2004. My wife and I were in Phoenix. Um, I didn't I, I wasn't running away from manufacturing, uh, but uh, she. So in 2004, we had a networking group in Phoenix of lean geeks, if you will, um, from different companies, Medtronic, Intel, some other companies. Um, no one was competing with each other. We'd get together once a quarter and go visit someone's facility. We'd talk shop. We'd provide a, a fresh perspective. We'd, we'd learn from each other. One of those quarterly sessions was held at a hospital in Scottsdale to go through the emergency department and see what, uh, was, I believe, two women had left Motorola and I forget if they were employees or consultants, but they were using Lean and Six Sigma in the emergency department and, and getting great results. And that was the first exposure I had to any of this. Um, found it really intriguing. I, I tried reading about Lean in healthcare just from my own learning and curiosity. There wasn't a whole lot being written then. And then uh, my wife had a new job opportunity in Texas in 2005, which meant I had to find a new job. And I was in right place, right time, got a, a call from a recruiter from Johnson & Johnson where they were looking to hire some people into a consulting group they had that did work with hospitals around Lean and Six Sigma. So there were, there were, there were sort of the ne- you know, necessity of making a change. If I hadn't made that visit to the hospital in Scottsdale, if I hadn't been networking and doing some things that were above and beyond, I, I wouldn't have gotten exposed to that. And the J&J person might have called and said, well, now I'm a manufacturing guy. I might not have been open to that opportunity. And, you know, in, in the spirit of plan, do, study, adjust, um, I thought, well, if I, if I get this job in healthcare, what's the worst that could happen? I might not like working in healthcare, but I bet I'll learn something. It seemed pretty risk-free. And uh, it turns out I love working in healthcare uh, for for many many reasons. And I know, twelve years later, I, I I still have some sort of role to play in sort of trying to um, help people improve our healthcare system. I've seen you know similar work, you know, different dynamics in Canada, but uh, lean healthcare uh, is is being used on virtually every continent and every type of healthcare system. Because when you really start looking at the details of how doctors and nurses and pharmacists and medical technologists and housekeepers um, do their work, lean applies, right? So it's, it's, you know, there's different questions and problems different countries have to solve at the real high level, big picture situation. But, but lean is, you know, thankfully proving 
uh, to be helpful all around the world in healthcare. Yeah. And speaking of statistics and what's at stake, um, uh, you mentioned in a recent blog post that by some estimates, 30% of U.S. healthcare spending is waste. Um, mm -hmm. And I wanted to mention specifically that 100% of your book's proceeds are going to something called the Louise H. Batts Patient Safety Foundation. And on their website, they mentioned that 200,000 people die and another 2 million fall victim to preventable medical, preventable medical errors during their stay in the hospital every yeah. year. And I think they said something that's like the third leading cause of death in the United States is, is preventable errors. By some estimates. And those numbers are staggering. Those numbers are almost unbelievable. If the estimates are in the ballpark of 400,000 deaths a year, not to mention all the people who uh, are harmed uh, and, and, and don't die. So you have, you know, cancer and heart disease and preventable medical error. And which of those three do you really never hear anything about in the context of the media, public health, um, you know, government discussion about what we're doing to fix our health care. Um, I, 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 I won't name drop or name names, but I, I had a chance to meet uh, a member of Congress, U.S. Congress, who was talking a little bit about whatever's going to happen with whatever attempts to try to uh, hopefully improve our health care system. But um, I, I asked him because he was talking about the need for uh, price transparency. In the United States, people don't know what something is going to cost. And I know people in Canada or other countries are thinking, why, why? you know, that's not, that's not a concern, but, um, uh, you know, it's hard to find out what something costs. And if we make price information available, people can choose hospitals that have lower costs and that's good for them and prevent, um, further increase in healthcare costs. And I said, well, you know, the other thing that's helpful to know as, a patient is who has the best quality and patient safety track record. And it would be helpful to have transparency around that. And he kind of gave me a look like, well, huh, hadn't been thinking about that. And, you know, the, the thing that's that's interesting in healthcare is that if all you have is price data, generally speaking, the lower price, lower cost organizations will guess what actually deliver better quality. Because when you have data on both, they tend to correlate so there's, there's this per misperception that better quality must cost more. Well, no, Toyota proved that's not necessarily true, and people are proving that in healthcare. And, and so I asked him, hey, you know, in Washington, D.C., is there any discussion in Congress about improving patient safety? And he said, well, well, well no. You know, the, the, the formal name of the law, you know, kind of um, – commonly called Obamacare, the formal name of that, well, sometimes it gets referred to as the Affordable Care Act, which is sort of the formal legal name. The full name of the law is the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. And, and, and it's, it's sad that for the most part, that patient protection piece, it's just not being talked about. And, and, and that's, that's mind boggling to me. Um, yeah, it's a, uh... Uh, it's a it's a fascinating topic. I mean, as you invoke, you know, especially for those of us who, you know, live in places where there's public provision of health care. Um, it's a bit of a spectacle to watch uh, all of the human effort that goes into managing the private, the, the totally private. Or, well, that's actually let me retract that the, the complicated system of care in the <laughs> right. United States. Right. Um, uh, you know, I was I was in Miami once. Um, with a friend who's a surgeon and there, this, there was this, you know, young surgeon who was coming the, near the end of his training. And he talked about how, uh, you know, he, there's this one hospital he might, he might get to work at his, his girlfriend's father owned it. 
And you're like, oh. And like, yeah, to, to, to me, it was like, I mean, I, I, it never occurred to me that an individual person could own a hospital. Um, <laughs> it's, it's like a person owning a tank or a fighter jet, yeah, right? Yeah. Those, right? And, and, it's, and it's interesting, too, how, for example, you know, you mentioned about pricing, how, you know, if I'm paying for my own health care insurance and I've bought the more expensive package than my neighbor has, and then I get offered a treatment for the same condition that is then transparently revealed to me to be cheaper than the one that my neighbor got, I'm going to feel cheated, right? Because I paid for the, I paid more. So shouldn't I be getting, you know, it, it sort of seems commonsensical for someone who's approaching it from a, you know, return on my investment and a kind of one-upmanship um, uh, perspective. Right. I then right. you know, want the more expensive thing. Um, and it, it's just fascinating to me, the, the complexities sure. involved in, in that yeah. I mean, even if you look, you know, in, 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 in different countries, uh, argument, discussion around different medications, different knee replacement implants, different stents for your heart. Um, again, now I, I'm an engineer relying on what I've heard from uh, doctors and, uh, you know, that, that the more expensive items are not always better. And so there is, uh, I think, a reasonable discussion. I'm a, I'm a little bit more familiar with uh, the system in England within the NHS. Um, there's an organization with the acronym NICE. I think it's the National Institute for Clinical Effectiveness might be the name. And, and they have to make decisions around what treatments are approved or not approved. And, and you're right. People might say, hey, I want the more expensive one. And uh, in some cases, you know, I mean, it's, it's not just being cheap to, to offer them something that's a lower cost, better alternative. Um, but you know, how do we provide people with the information that helps them understand you need when we talk in healthcare about value, uh, higher quality, lower cost. And, uh, you know, a lot of times insurance companies, governments, uh, you know, people say, well, you're just pushing the cheaper one on me because they think cheaper means worse. So that that's, I think an interesting lesson from lean, uh, don't assume cheaper means worse. Look at the data. <laughs> you know, that, that's your best guide. Yeah, you could also, and there's also this big problem of um, unnecessary treatment, whether it's, you know, surgery or um, medication, right. which seems in part driven by the perverse desire to get value from the insurance that you've paid for. So, for example, you know, if you're paying 10 bucks a month for Netflix and you realize you haven't watched anything in a, mere, in a year, you might feel like you cheated yourself. So you're going to go in and watch some damn Netflix, um, uh, you know, and so people, but I think people do see it that way. They're like, well, I paid this much. Um, you know, I want to go get, get some value from what I paid for. So give me some pills and, you know, oh, really? Like it covers this surgery. Well, why don't I get that surgery? Um, even if you totally don't need it and perhaps have no understanding of the fact that just going to the hospital and having something done to you is inherently very risky. Um, right. I was wondering if you could, I mean, maybe, maybe getting a little bit more specific, if you could give me an example of a project that you've worked on where you applied lean methodology in, in healthcare. Yeah, I mean, one, one, one of my favorite uh, projects, I think, just because of the, the results and the meaning involved, uh, was at a children's hospital in, in Texas. And I'll preface this by saying, you know, the, these success stories are, are never because of what I did. Um, I played a role. I, I teach people. I, I try to challenge people, open their eyes to seeing their current process, understanding what what perhaps is possible. And it, it's the people from the hospitals 
who improved operations, uh, not surgical operations, but improving operations, how things work, improving processes, improving systems. So at, at this children's hospital, the, uh, the problem statement, because you know, the group at J&J was really good about not saying, well, we're, we're going to come in and implement lean. Well, no, it, what, what matters is let's solve a problem that matters. And not just do lots of training and certification and implementing tools. And then what do you have at the end? Well, no, we're, we were really focused around there being a compelling need for change. So at this children's hospital, uh, outpatient MRI procedures, doctor's office would call um, with a referral and, and try to book an appointment to come in for an MRI. And, and because of little kids, if, if you're going to get an MRI for an hour and a half, um, sedation is often part of the equation. And uh, the waiting times for an appointment uh, were, were in the ballpark of about 12 to 14 weeks. There was a hospital about 30 minutes away, another children's hospital with its own MRIs, where the waiting time was about six weeks. So a lot of times the doctor's office would hang up the phone and call the other hospital. And there was a risk that they would stop calling that hospital ever again. So one thing I think was really brilliant for some of the leadership there, clearly there in, in the American system, there was a financial loss and opportunity to patients going someplace else because hospitals here are paid generally by the procedure, which that's, that's a different question, different topic to debate. That's part of our health reform system uh, to stop just paying for the activity. Uh, but they didn't emphasize finance. They framed the problem as something that was deeply meaningful to staff. The problem being patients are waiting too long to come in and get an MRI, which A, either delays their diagnosis and treatment, or B, a lot of times the MRI would help rule something out. And why do you want the parents to have 12 to 14 weeks of stress and sleepless nights before they find out Whew, okay, that's not something major that my kid has. So the team, back to your earlier points, we would not have gotten results by setting a target and browbeating everyone into doing better, trying harder, working faster. That wasn't the solution. So we said, well, let, let's analyze our current state. Let's look at the way things are done, the scheduling process, the scheduling templates, uh, how long it takes to do certain things when patients arrive, to get checked in, to be sedated, to go to uh, the MRI, go to recovery. It's not as predictable as a car assembly line, but you know certain types of procedures take a certain amount of time. So the team spent, I want to say, at least a month deeply studying and understanding their system. Instead of everybody who was in their individual silos, we had a cross-functional team that was dedicated to this full-time to really look and see the disconnects between silos, the, uh, the OMG moments where people say, oh, OMG, do we really, is that really how we do it? Or you see disconnects of uh, you know, kind of miscommunication and, and people not understanding the system, and there's, there's some OMFG moments <laughs> that, that, that kick in. And so there's no shame uh, blaming. Uh, it's, it's, there's, there's, there's learning and understanding. And people say, well, what could we do to change that system? Let's change the scheduling template. Let's change the sequence of when 
the, the anesthesiologists and staff and everybody arrive first thing in the morning so that cases can start on time and we can stay on schedule. Um, we had, you know, so lots and lots of little details. There wasn't a single root cause. There wasn't one thing to implement. It was lots of examples of redesigning parts of the process, taking a look at the system from a high level, changing the way we do things, testing change, um, increasing throughput, basically, you know, doing more MRIs per day without jeopardizing quality. Doing more MRIs per day means they could get that backlog down. They eventually, it took a while, but they got the waiting times down to about two to three weeks, which everybody was, was deeply proud of. Um, that means better patient care. And, you know, after the fact, you know, somebody I know was writing a case study for their book about this situation and, you know, ballpark figures. I mean, this was worth millions and millions of dollars a year to the hospital. Um, so it, it was win, 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 win. I don't know how many, <laughs> how many wins. It was good for the patients. The staff felt good about what they were doing. Um, it was good for the organization. Um, it was, it was providing the right care, hopefully not just increasing the number of MRIs that the government or the insurance companies paid for. That was sort of out of scope back to that question of, you know, some other people in different projects look at reducing unnecessary MRIs, uh, Virginia Mason in Seattle did a lot of work around patients coming into the emergency department with back pain. The old system is really easy. Yeah. Get them a CT scan. Let's see if there's anything there, which is expensive and exposes people to radiation. And they started challenging and saying, how about we just give people physical therapy? And that's more effective and less expensive. Um, so I, I think it's, you know, sometimes the, the project boundaries that we work with, uh, maybe don't reflect the full scope that we should looking at, we should be, should be looking at. But I mean, I think the key though, back to the, the example of the children's hospital, engaging the people who do the work, the people who care deeply about the work, they're the ones best positioned uh, to help improve the work and get better results. One of the um, really interesting things about this topic generally is um, that we've been talking largely about the people based processes but one of the big discussions going on nowadays, you know, perhaps more in manufacturing, but also in healthcare, is automation, um, uh -huh. and the impact of technology on things. Um, so, for example, you know, how does how does healthcare change when you know someone can have a something strapped to their wrist that um, monitors what they're doing, and then maybe that's connected by a you know Wi-Fi uh, to right. uh, the internet, which then can be connected to some algorithm that can then dispense medical advice to them. Right. Um, uh, and I was wondering, I mean, just high level, what do you see the impact being on the management of healthcare wow. automation and technology? I, mean, I know it's a big topic, so you can, I mean, yeah. feel free to enter it from whatever well, direction. So there, there, I, I think I would carve out automation and technology as, as two different things. So a lot of times automation in healthcare has been sort of a fool's errand, sort of like it has been in manufacturing where people will automate a bad process. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this. Hospital laboratory with a really poor layout that wasn't really designed properly, um, they'll say, well, uh, you know, we, we have trouble keeping up with that, so some company sells them on a lab automation system that replaces a person carrying a tube of blood from here 
hundreds of feet to the back corner of the lab, they replace that with a conveyor belt. Like, well, no, what you need to do is eliminate the need for the walking or the conveyor belt, change the layout, put the high volume instrument right here next to where the tubes arrive. You improve flow, you reduce turnaround time, far less expensive than automation or robots. But I think the idea of technology is interesting though, especially in, in the realm of, of value. And I think like to me as a patient, value doesn't mean faster, better response to something gone wrong. To me, value means quality of life and keeping me healthy. So part of the health reform discussion in the United States is about how do we change incentives within the system to help keep people healthy instead of treating them more efficiently and without harm once they go to hospital? How do we prevent them going to the hospital? Um, you, I thank you for mentioning you know, the, the Louise H. Batts Patient Safety Foundation. They have guidebooks and an iPad app to help people have a safer, error-free hospital stay. It would be great if the need for that book was eliminated and we could keep people healthy. So like you said, there's, there's, it could be uh, technology, um, sensors, I have a Fitbit on, there's all kinds of smart home applications for aging populations that are interesting. I, I talked to somebody today who's doing some innovative work around trying to help keep people who are chronically ill out of the hospital by giving them more home-based treatment, which involves a different design of services, some technology. Um, I think there's great opportunities there because to me, the parallel to lean manufacturing in my days in the factories, there was something in lean called uh, TPM, uh, total productive maintenance, which says we don't want to just get better at fixing machines when they break down. We want to keep the machine healthy and running. So like preventative maintenance for machines, parallels to, to, to humans and people. Now, it's complicated because, you know, people who live in a free society are free to make all sorts of uh, bad choices that affect the ability to keep our <laughs> human machine running. So that gets complicated. But, I mean, I think there are parallels in, in lean of, of asking questions around what can we do to prevent hospital admissions instead of having a better hospital admission. Um, I, I think technology, I, I think, is certainly going to be a part of that. I, I visited a health system recently that's rolling out uh, telemedicine, where you can FaceTime uh, a doctor with the app. The employees of this health system, they get that for free. Um, it's just part of their health plan. And if that helps prevent trips to urgent care or the emergency department, and again, if that prevents unnecessary trips, like we're not trying to prevent necessary care. But I, I think there's, there's this great technology frontier that's going to help disrupt healthcare in a lot of really important ways. And, and I think the key there will be lower cost, better quality. That, that's, that's what Lean's trying to provide. And, um, and, and this new frontier, I think, is aligned with that. I could um, talk with you about this for a long time. It's such an interesting topic, but in the interest of uh, moving on um, sure. from you know the very serious uh, subjects of manufacturing and healthcare to something maybe a little bit more deliberately fun. Um, you you uh -huh. mentioned at the beginning, you've written about lean in sports. Um, yeah. And um, when I was checking out your book, I, you know, being a Canadian, I zeroed in on the chapter about the NHL. Um, and, you know, one thing you mentioned was the, you mentioned in the book and you mentioned in this interview is the importance of talking to the worker. 
Um, right. In this case, it's the athlete. Um, and you yeah. have this one post about how I think it was Reebok redesigned the NHL players' uh, uniforms, right. but they maximized uh, the management of moisture in a way that was actually detrimental to the player's <laughs> performance. And then they started doing all right. these workarounds. And as, if, you, if you remember that, that part, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that because that's such an interesting story. All this investment and all this hype, <laughs> into yeah. this technology, and then the players are like, what? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm jogging my memory. I'm looking this up where, yeah, they, they, they talk about, um, beat away technology that repels moisture and a play dry system that allows for better temperature and moisture control. And, um, so there's a quote here from uh, from Mark Recchi who said, um, well, the sweaters don't soak anything in, which I guess is what they wanted. But the problem is it goes into your gloves. It goes into your skates. It saturates the leather in both feeling, leaving players feeling as if their hands and feet are immersed in liquid. So um, I think, you know, a lot of times uh, like one of my favorite blogs is a, a website called UniWatch. And, uh, you know, talking about sports uniforms and the way uniforms look and the technology, it's just kind of a pet interest of, uh, of a lot of people. And, and sometimes, you know, these, these companies talk about uniform systems. I'm like, well, a, a system would be a good thing. I, I wrote here that this was sub-optimizing the jersey at the expense of, of overall performance. So, you know, I, I wonder what happened if they ended up scrapping that. Because um, it sounds like, all right, well, if they made a mistake, you want to get feedback from the players and, um, and, and change. And if anything, go back to the way it used to be, which in, in a public way can be very embarrassing. But when we see in, in, in healthcare example, when we talk about continuous improvement, part of that continuous improvement mindset is we test changes. We plan, do, study, adjust. And sometimes that study says, oops, we learned something. You know, some might call that a failure. And say, okay, we got to go back to the old way until we figure out a better solution, or we've we've got to go back and figure out something different. Um, uh, I, I, you know, uh, MBA um, example that comes to mind where the MBA did just that. Um, they introduced a, a new design basketball back in 2006, and the players complained that the ball was too slippery. It cut their fingers. It didn't bounce correctly. And um, David Stern, who was the commissioner at the time, said, well, even though we did a lot of testing with this new ball before we put it out there, we're going to listen to the players and we're going to go back to the old ball. You know, I'll, I'll give them credit for that because, you know, I mean, uh, we want to try to pre prevent problems, I think. But if you look at the lean startup methodology, sometimes you don't know until you actually go to market. So. I think there's this idea of, you know, doing a small test of change. Did they test the new design during a preseason game? That might have been a smart way of avoiding a problem where I, I presume they they launched new uniforms for all. What is it? 30 teams all at the same time. Well, then that becomes a really big, expensive, embarrassing public problem where if they had subtly, quietly done some testing, they wouldn't have maybe felt the need to be stubborn and maybe not, not go back to the old way. So, yeah, I think, you know, the reason I write about sports and I'll give credit to LeanPub helping me turn 
blog posts into a book is that I think it's fun and it's a good way of kind of reinforcing and thinking about lessons around lean and change. I'm like, oh, is there anything I've done in the workplace that's similar <laughs> to this bad rollout of new hockey sweaters or hockey uniforms? Um, that, that's my goal with some of that writing. Yeah. Um, moving on to that, the, the last part of the podcast, um, uh, I was wondering, I mean, I guess you, you came to us because um, we uh, offer the ability to turn blog posts into books, um, but for practicing lean, you also did this lean publishing approach where um, you, yeah. you know, published before all of the chapters were in and that, you know, the book is composed of chapters by 16 different individuals. Um, did you get any feedback along the way from readers about the content that people would then incorporate into changing their chapters? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a really interesting question. I have to, I don't, I don't think that I did. So, um, you know, as I've seen the evolution of, of lean pub, over the years, you know, the technology and, and some, you know, the, the, the platform, you know, early days, it was the easiest thing was to import a blog via RSS and um, publish that as a book. So that was not done as lean publishing. It was with, you know, continuous flow of adding new chapters. That was kind of big batch self-publishing through the lean pub platform. So you're right. Practicing lean was an attempt at experimenting with this, lean publishing approach where I think I, if I remember right, I went to market with two chapters that I wrote to try, try to frame the rest of the book that I hoped was going to get written. And so in typical lean pub style, I made the book available. I set a really low price of like a dollar 99 as a suggested price. And I, I sold a bunch of copies and, and I gave copies away to people that I was trying to recruit as authors. And the, the, the feedback I got wasn't about content of the book. The feedback was, hey, I really like those first two chapters. I've got stories to share. You've inspired me. I'd like to write a chapter. So that feedback was different. Oh, that's really interesting. I've never heard a story like yeah. that before. That's great. So I used the LeanPub platform and, and publishing you know, minimum viable book as a way of recruiting collaborators. Now, there were some people I know, I knew who I reached out to and recruited, but part of it was an experiment of within my blog community or LinkedIn or Twitter, who would find this and who would be inspired to contribute something. So that, that was part of the incremental approach. And you know, the project hung out there for about a year and a half before I think I've sort of said, now the book page says it's 100% complete. But I could always still, I could go add a chapter. You know, why not? That's that's one thing I really like about the Lean Pub platform and the control that you have as an author. Um, and another thing we have that you're um, taking advantage of is you can add digital content. So in addition to adding yeah. chapters, you can actually add new material. And you, I believe, are the first person to be in progress publishing an audiobook. Um, <laughs> version of your yeah. book. And I was wondering if you could yeah. talk a little bit about that. I mean, are you, I mean, like, you know, people who are into self-publishing know that audiobooks are a big deal. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that process. I mean, do you just sit down in front of your fancy microphone and, and read yeah. them out yourself? Well, or... well, 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 better yet. Um, so the idea to even do an audiobook came about and from the books community. So, you know, going back to books that have had traditionally published, like, you know, the book Lean Hospitals, 
I've had a lot of people ask about an audiobook version of that, namely doctors. And, you know, my publisher doesn't do audiobooks. These are somewhat niche technical publications. And, you know, the, the publisher had always said, like, yeah, sure, you know, knock yourself out, Mark. If you want to do an audiobook and invest in the creation of an audiobook, which either means time or money to pay someone to professionally produce an audiobook or for at least for it to be professional enough. Um, I, I didn't really think that business case was going to really play out in a positive way. So I never moved forward on that, but I'm thinking about lean startup. How do you test a concept? Uh, what's a minimum viable audiobook? Um, I started thinking like, well, I could do, I could do a chapter and see if anyone buys it or how. So that was percolating in my head, but I never moved forward on it. Um, one of the authors of a chapter in Practicing Lean reached out and said, hey, my daughter's in college. She does, you know, she's dabbling in professional voiceover work. She's trying to build her portfolio. Um, she knows her dad wrote a chapter and she would like to read this as an audiobook if you're interested in, in that. I said, yeah course. Now she's a busy student. So I'm like, well, sure, do it, do, you know, uh, do a chapter, do your dad's chapter. We'll do a proof of concept. Let's see how it is. So I think she did a great job. It wasn't quite ready to go to market yet. It was busy, wasn't a priority, but she's, she's eventually, you know, knocked through about half the book. I read the, the chapters I wrote for better or for worse. It's in my voice. And we have one other author who chose to read his. So it's, so it's a mix of voices, but, um, Samantha's going to eventually read the rest of the book and, and, you know, busy time of the school year. Like there was enough content sitting there where, and I had some time to say, let me try to do a little audio production as an amateur. I mean, I've produced almost 500 podcasts and I don't know if they're all professional sound quality, but it was good enough to get the message across. I produced, um, half of the book and, I looked and I said, well, okay, I know there's this digital extras feature on Lean Pub. I can create a package. I can upload the files. I can set a different suggested price. And because of that connection to the readers, I can say, well, hey, you know, you're going to buy the audio book and you'll get new chapters as they're available. I'll contact the authors the same way, same mechanism as if there was a book update. And this was honestly the, the fastest, easiest way to get something to market. I played around with a, a WordPress plugin. It's a mouthful at the end of the day. WordPress plugin um, for, make, you know, for selling digital downloads. And I thought something like that would be really easy. And my goodness, I spent a couple hours playing with it and fighting it and the payment mechanism and this and different pages and I'm a fairly technical person and I gave up on it. I said, you know what? Forget that, at least for now. I'm going to use the LeanPub platform as a test to see, will anyone even buy this? And, and if so, and if people give feedback that say, oh, I want to buy it some other way, maybe I'll make that possible. But, you know, I think right now, I think there's a, today somebody bought the audiobook. I think I've sold four copies in a very soft launch. Um, I, to me, that's what LeanPub is all about. It just encompasses, you know, all, all these ways of sort of testing a market. Now, I'm, you know, we're going to complete the book either way, but, uh, you know, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens from here. But that, that, that's some of the reasons and thought process for why and how I did this on LeanPub.
Yeah, one of the um, really interesting things about what you did as well was um, uh, you could, because we allow a sort of double-blind communication between mm -hmm. authors and readers, one, and we have coupons, what you were able to do is offer a coupon, like a free coupon to your existing readers and announce to them through LeanPub that, um, you know, there's this new content. Uh, my book is now in, in audio form. Yeah. And then that, from the sort of self-published author's perspective, that ability to communicate to yeah. exist, your existing audience about new content you, that you've created, even if you're giving it to them for free, yeah. play an important strategic role in reactivating their interest in you. Mm -hmm. And then if you've got something new to offer as well, like say a new book, you know, you can use that opportunity of adding free content over here to draw people's attention to new content they can pay for over there. I don't yeah. to do that in this case, but that is, that is something that, that one can do. And it's, um, it's really, you know, clever the way you, you know, well, offered that content to your existing readers well, and communicated with them. Well, yeah, well, thanks. And I mean, I think that's, that's, um, one of the benefits of, self-publishing uh, as opposed to traditional publishing. Um, I've recommended LeanPub to a lot of people I know who were considering writing a book. Um, part of that benefit is that ability to reach your customers, even if it's sort of through, you know, blinded through the LeanPub system. Um, for a lot of authors, writing a book is not a big moneymaker. Now, writing a book is uh, a passion. I've, I've always told, <laughs> kind of sidetrack on author advice. Um, people say, um, I want to write a book. Uh, tell people, okay, good. People who say, I want to write a book, they are people who start books. I think the people who finish books are people who say, I need to write a book. Like, I will hate myself and my life will be unfulfilled if I do not write this. Like there's a different level of commitment and passion there. And, um, you know, but anyway, so beyond that, if someone's writing a book that's more of a, hey, I think this will be good for business. And it, it can be both. You know, the big opportunity often is um, not from the book, but from speaking engagements, consulting, training workshops. Now, I would hope nobody and I wouldn't recommend anyone use the lean the lean pub platform to spam the readers because that's bad for your relationship. Yes. Um, people will unsubscribe and you lose that permission based communication. But I think use sparingly that ability to communicate with your readers, to maybe invite them to a community of readers, I think done judiciously and professionally can be a huge advantage to an author. And when you publish traditionally, you don't get any of that customer information. The best you can do is have a website where you get people to sign up for a newsletter or something that allows you to have that, um, that interaction. But, uh, you know, I think, I think done right. That's an advantage that's built into to lean pub. Yeah. Our recommendation is, um, I mean, definitely don't spam. Um, but, um, uh, to use the email, your readers feature when you've added new content, yeah. Um, it's like significant new content, you know? Um, uh, so, you know, if you've like, you know, fixed a typo, don't email your readers and say, I fixed a typo. <laughs> right. but, but the thing right. about it is that's so great is that, it, you know, not only sort of does it, you know, get them thinking about you again, but when right. they get an email, when they, when they come to understand what these emails mean, it means something I previously paid for now has new value added to it. Um, so whether they end up reading it or listening to it in your case or not, 
you know, it's a positive interaction, you know, um, That's a good point. You know, which yeah. is, which is, you know, I mean, so a news, an email newsletter can be a positive interaction as well, but when it's like, no, it's something you previously paid for now has something more in it. Um, you know, that's just, you know, that's just a positive thing. And people on the receiving end understand why you told them about it. It's because they, yeah. they paid for it. Um, uh, and you know, that's important. Um, yeah. Uh, I guess well, and, and and I was going to say I have a tip for uh, any lean pub listeners who uh, are, are, are listening, um, you know, I think there, there's also I, I think the variable pricing model is great. Should you make your book available for free and have the option where, you know, choosing the pay is essentially a donation um, because there, there was a there, there's one feature in lean pub and this was user error. This was my my bad, my fault. Um, there's the ability to offer coupons. And I thought, well, let me try to spark interest in the book and readership, especially because this is benefiting charity. Let me give some copies away and hopefully there'll be some word of mouth benefit. And so I posted a coupon out on, on LinkedIn for, I think I set a limit of 10 free copies. I did the same thing through Twitter or the other way around. On one of those platforms, I fat fingered it and I put in limit of 100. And guess what? I gave away 100 free copies. Mm-hmm. Which part of me said, ah, dang it, lost opportunity. Part of me said, that's awesome that 100 people were interested, right? Because even if a book is free, and who knows if they read it, um, I don't know. Yeah, there's probably no way to feedback stats of how much people are actually reading. But um, if people are going to spend their time voluntarily with content you created as a content creator, that's pretty special. So yeah. I said, oh, 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 shoot. But I learned I learned quickly to kind of just live with it and say, well, OK, that happened. Maybe I should do more of that. I don't know. Yeah, this is a. Um, uh huge topic of conversation in um, the self-publishing world. When, when should you do free? For what should you do free? So for example, a common strategy that people who are writing a series of novels, you know, like a trilogy or, or even more might do is make the first one free um, and then, you know, release the second one. And people who've read the first one will want to buy the second one. Um, yeah. Whereas if you hadn't given away the first one for free, they may not have gotten into your series or your writing in the first place. Um, you know, you can commonly, another common strategy is you make, even if it's not a series, you make one thing free, but you make it free when you've got something new that people uh-huh. can pay for. So it draws that attention towards your, your platform. Um, and you can have various offerings on that platform. And um, also, I, I guess I just should mention that, um, you know, we have books that have made a lot of money that have a free minimum price. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, our best-selling book uh, has a free minimum price and best-selling by revenue. I mean, it's both best-selling by copies and by revenue, and it has a free yeah. minimum price. Um, people do, people really do pay. Um, it's something that for us, you know, we're just, you know, in-house, we're so, we just know this so straightforwardly. Um, we need to kind of, you know, sometimes defamiliarize ourselves and sort of understand that to most people, the idea that um, there's value to the author in giving something away for free and that people will pay for free things 
Um, mm-hmm. It's actually quite, those are quite unfamiliar concepts. And yeah. Surprising concepts to people. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I think there's one dynamic where I'm um, here. I'm just going to pull up a book um, through lean pop. So like on Amazon, my impression, and I and I've I've published, I've taken Lean Pub books and published them through Kindle Direct Publishing, um, and I, I love that Lean Pub doesn't lock in your content. You can sell it on different platforms, and I appreciate that. Um, royalties are better through Lean Pub. <laughs> There's lots of reasons I would hope. Yes, they are. People choose to buy it through Lean Pub, but. Um, it also helps them meet different customers where they are. But um, my impression, if, I, if I'm searching for a book and I see something is available for 99 cents on Kindle, my first thought is, well, I bet that's garbage. I've looked at a lot of books that are really cheap, at least technical books in my field, and they are garbage. So look, I know there's a different story about like 50 shades of gray and people who have launched incredibly successful books. Doesn't mean they're good, I guess, you know, but successful books. So maybe fiction readers haven't drawn that same conclusion, but my concern with offering something for free or cheap is that people say, Oh, well, I bet that's bad. But the thing I love about lean pub is the suggested price maybe suggests and implies quality but somebody would unconsciously have to drag that slider down to zero and think about author earns zero. Is that really fair to the author? Right. I mean, it's a different dynamic there where, um, yeah, I, I, it's, it's really interesting oh, to yeah, think. It's a, that's a really a fascinating dynamic. Um, uh, I mean, which I could talk about for a long time, but the, um, the idea of giving, I mean, it's, it's sort of related to what we were talking about about earlier about empowering employees is that when you give people choice, sometimes their choices surprise you. Uh, yeah. and it's because you've given them choice that, that it's not the specific choice you've given them. It's that you've given them choice in the first place, mm-hmm. um, changes, changes what's going on. Um, yeah, I could talk about this again for a long time, but I guess so, we could probably wrap up pretty soon. And I just right. wanted to but, ask you the, oh, sorry. Well, well, well I was going to say one, one thing I just want to jump in and say, so, you know, the, the, the lean pub platform, uh, I'm multitasking, forgive me, but I, I had the, the, the book Lean Blog Sports pulled up, which is um, a collection of content over the years from my blog. Now, part of me is thinking that content is already available for free online because of my blog. But somebody would have to do a lot of work to gather, up, you know, it's, you know, there's benefit to be able to read offline and have an ebook and all these great examples. So I'm going to run an experiment now. And if anyone's listening and interested in lean and sports, I've set the minimum price to free. So if somebody would like to come and get it for free, okay, great. Uh, I'll be happy that somebody wants to read it. The suggested price is $9.99. I'll see what happens. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. Thanks for doing that. We're uh, making news. Um, this, 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 this won't just so you know, this won't be coming out, you know, kind of right away. Um, sure. But I know that your book's been up for a while. And, and I'm, I'm sure this will probably remain true, as long as you're doing the experiment. Right. Well, but one thing one thing I've learned is that ebook collection of blog posts, at least with all the factors of how much I've promoted them, which is not a ton and whatever, like, none of these have sold a bunch of copies. But for me, it was an experiment in using the lean pub platform, um, seeing how it evolved, playing with self publishing. And that gave me the confidence to then go do a project like publishing lean on this platform. So like, to me, I, I think I'm practicing what I preach. I was trying to learn by doing, 
run some experiments, plan, do, study, adjust. And I wasn't expecting any of these to be a huge moneymaker, but I'd learned something. So I wouldn't call that a failure. Um, my last question is, um, if there's anything that we haven't built yet that you have thought, you know, that would be useful for me to have, uh, what would that be? If there is anything. Yeah, it's um, a good question. I, I, I did have somebody ask today um, about the ability to get only the audio book. I don't know if there is a market for purely to have something not be an extra, but just be a digital file, whether that I'm thinking of different things, consultants and people sell um, audio books. It could be training PowerPoint slides. It could be video training modules that are added over time. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to, I'm just wildly throwing out ideas. Yeah. But. Well, I mean, one, I mean, you, you could currently kind of hack lean pub to do that by putting up like a one page book and then sure. also selling along with it, any arbitrary oh, digital content okay. that you want you to, go. I mean, uh -huh. it's obviously, you know, that's kind of, you know, that's not sort of the business that we're in. That's, that's a fringe use case that's there. A fringe use case, But at the same time, there's nothing, as long as, you know, I'm not necessarily recommending this, but you know, it is something that one could do. Um, and you know, if, if anyone does it, you, as long as you're very clear about what's going on, um, you know, then you won't end up with angry and we'll, we won't end up, with, yeah. you know, angry. Right. And you, and, you, and you don't want, you don't want copyright infringement or other, I mean, you know, there's all yeah, kinds that, of, that's, yeah, that's a separate thing. Yeah. You certainly, well, you certainly don't, don't upload anything you haven't written or produced <laughs> yourself. Right. Um, uh, but, anyway, but uh, yeah, thanks for mentioning. Oh, I was that. Say one, one other, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, one, one other suggestion that's just from the thought from earlier, it would be great to have a little bit more two-way data from the readers. And I'm, I'm just thinking out loud, if there's a way of surveying readers and getting feedback, because they can see this book is 100% complete. In a perfect world, I would love to see how much of the book did people actually read would be interesting data. Um, the idea of one of the big kind of lacunae in lean pub is interaction between authors and readers and readers and readers. Uh -huh. um, it's one of the big, uh, you know, we've got it, we've got a, you know, discuss forum for each book that can be active, that is activated by default that people do use. And we've got an email, the author feature so that readers can lean, can email authors right from the book landing page. Yeah. Um, uh, but they're not highly emphasized. Um, and as I mentioned before, we do have this way of emailing readers when you publish a new version of your book. Um, but there is just a lot more. We know there's a lot more we can do around that uh, part of things, um, including, for uh -huh. example, you know, having a, a change log that authors can direct yeah. readers to so they know what's the difference between this previous one and the last one and what's the progress. And so a perspective meter might be, well, how much content has this person really been adding? It says the book is 70% done, but it's been up for a year. You know, there's, there's a lot more that we can do um, around, around that. And it is something that we plan on working on um, over time. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. Um, when it comes to the subject of monitoring how much people are reading, um, you know, I, I can't speak for everyone and I can't speak for forever. Um, yeah. But currently, 
my understanding of our position is that that is not something we would do. Um, sure. Uh, but is there a way of asking, inviting, yeah. like through a small a small survey, people to volunteer that information, which is probably, I'm guessing, the only technically feasible way anyway? I don't yeah, know. That, that's a very good suggestion. Um, and uh, it's one I'll... Um, pass on to the team because you know yeah. getting 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 that kind of voluntary information is certainly well, something that we would not have not have an issue yeah with. as again yeah. as long as you know you're not spamming sure. and, and stuff like that right but i'm glad you mentioned i honestly did not i either didn't know or didn't remember that there was a discuss forum available for the book yeah yeah um uh if you scroll down on the landing page you'll find a little link that says um discuss this book um, yeah, authors can turn it off. That's pretty right. rare, but but they can turn it off. Um, but it's there by default when you publish a book. And yeah, people do use it. Yeah, um, interesting. Well, thanks very much, very much, Mark. I really enjoyed yeah, thanks this, you know wide ranging conversation. It was really fun. Yeah, um, and uh, thanks for uh, being a Lean Pub author. Well, thank you, thank you for the platform, and uh, enjoyed the conversation. Really appreciate it.